Oil, coal, and gas powers the global economy. There's a one-to-one -one relationship. It's a straight line. We're breaking that line, and we're supposed to break it in seven years' time. I mean, fundamentally break it. So it requires some fundamental recognitions that the financial system needs to change in a big way, not in this incremental way. And I think that shows or proves that we are kind of beyond the tipping point, a social tipping point, that we are moving in the direction of decarbonization, of adaptation, of handling this crisis. It's just that it's going too slow. In this episode of Transformers, we are very pleased to host Johan Rockström, director of the Postum Institute for Climate Impact Research and renowned scientists. Professor Rockström, thank you so much for gracing us at this <laughs> event. Well, great to be with you, Shirin. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Now, let us break some boundaries. Yes, let's do that. Why let's not? do that. <laughs> let's do that. So, my first question. What does a just and well-designed carbon market look like and what can it achieve? Well, to begin with, it's, it's quite remarkable that it took us essentially 26 COP meetings before we truly agreed that we share the same atmosphere on planet Earth. Or to be honest, it was already in the Paris Agreement. So say it was, um, you know, 21 COP meetings. That means that any carbon market, to be really fair and aligned with science, to give the best outcomes or, let's say, give the possibilities for dignified life and dignified communities and prosperity and equity, requires that you set science-based targets, planetary boundaries for climate at the planetary scale, which translates 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is not a goal, it's a limit, it's a physical limit, that translates to a global carbon budget, and that budget, which IPCC has shown quite clearly, is around 400 billion tons of carbon dioxide, must be equitably shared and can be done through market mechanisms, at least in part, on a global market. So strictly speaking, as it's one, one atmosphere, one global target, one budget, it requires for justice that you have one price on carbon globally and a mechanism to ensure that you have a fair distribution of that budget. Currently, we're not operating like that at all. We are recognizing the 1.5, we're recognizing global carbon budget, but we're still allowing a very unequitable uh, consumption of that remaining budget. And what's happening today is that a small minority of countries, the wealthy countries, are basically consuming the, the vast part of the budget, but the impacts that it's causing are hit on the vulnerable countries in the world primarily. So we have a situation where uh, a just market must have this, these, uh, this guardrail of scientific foundation, which is what I call boundary, but then also having uh, a regulatory framework with it when it comes to a fair redistribution, and then finally a, a price. And these are the three elements required. How do you explain, at least in, when we think about it, just amongst ourselves, one cop after the next cop and all the talk we hear about carbon markets and we need and the science is clear what needs to be done is clear are we moving anywhere so far this cop and why aren't we if we're not yeah well so um there's no doubt that uh, cop 27 is particularly challenging because uh, since cop 26 we're actually moving backwards we're moving backwards not only in the sense that we have promised each other, all countries in the world, to bend the global curve and reduce emissions, but we're still increasing emissions. But not only that, the, the geopolitical instability in the world, uh, 
the economic recession, which is just around the corner, the rising energy prices, inflation, food prices on the rise. All of this has led many of the advanced economies even to start backtracking on some of their key commitments on climate policy, which is um, making many of us very, very nervous because if the richest countries in the world, as soon as you get a little economic spanner in the wheel, uh, conclude that they cannot really keep pace on the climate transition, how can you then expect the world's developing countries that have even lesser means to, to accomplish the transition to keep pace? So we're in a very delicate situation right now. And, um, and this is, um, you can then ask the question, well, is it still worth having COP meetings? I would say, well, it's, it's more important than ever because it's in exactly in situations like this when there is a sense of, uh, uh, you could call it uh, temporary hesitation on really moving on delivery that we need to remind ourselves and really get the, the pressure from all stakeholders that look here, this is absolutely necessary to work on decisively. And the only little sliver of light in the tunnel so far here in Sharm el-Sheikh is that, um, you know, hundreds of heads of state were here and, uh, and, and thereby... The is coming tomorrow? Yes, and, and Lula da Silva will be coming yeah, as a private citizen absolutely. Uh, before he takes office yeah. in Brazil. Yeah. So you have uh, a recognition. Why are they here? Well, they're here because they draw the conclusion that their citizens are so concerned that for me to be sure that I can remain in office, I better go to Sharm el-Sheikh. I better really take this seriously. I better have a communication on climate action. So they don't just send their environment ministers or climate ministers. And I think that shows or proves that we are kind of beyond a tipping point, a social tipping point, that, that we are moving in the direction of, of decarbonization, of adaptation, of handling this crisis. It's just that it's going too slow. It looks to me like we might be able to consider tighter accountabilities as citizens when it comes to the cops, to these big meetings, to governments and their performance and how they buy things, how they spend taxpayers' money, let's put it that way. We need tighter accountabilities and, of course, the corporate sector. How do you see accountability evolving? It looks like if people are more responsible, if they are more accountable, and if there are stronger accounting systems across the board and better ways of making sense of aggregating and sharing data, big data, on not only the state of the world environment, which is very, very important, but also about human performance, then do you think that might turn the needle? And if so, then how would you do it? Or is it doable at all? You know, Sharna, I, I think that you're articulating yourself in a very diplomatic way. I, I, I wouldn't say that it's even a choice. I would say that accountability is an absolute compulsory necessity. It's an urgent agenda. I'm even of the view that, you know, in, in, in Glasgow, we finalized the, the, the last negotiated text, Article 6. There's nothing more to negotiate. The only thing that counts now is to align the national plans, the, all the NDCs, with science and to account for your delivery, to report back. These, these COP meetings should be report sessions on your accountable delivery, not only on, on emission cuts, but also on adaptation finance, on loss and damage finance, and on your work with nature climate solutions. And, and that is what we need to start seeing. So I think we are doing a mistake to allow ourselves to lift up new questions that have to be negotiated. There's nothing left to negotiate. 
The only thing that we need to do is to listen to the science, the updates, and to act on them. And now we know we need to cut emissions by half by 5 to 7% per year so that the world cuts emissions by 50% by 2030 in seven years' time. And that's the pace of change. That's the only thing that counts. And the only way to count it is to keep all the countries accountable for that and report back. And you should have a, you know, an accounting system for that. I mean, a carbon accounting system for all the nations and their report system. UNFCCC has it for their domestic emissions, but it's not uh, something that, that is, you know, I would have wished to see countries with uh, scientists, with uh, uh, stakeholders from both business and civil society, listening in on the, on the reporting from the ministries responsible in the countries for their delivery and that you would hold them accountable as well. There's a lot of work that needs to be done and you're echoing, uh, you know, very much also the message from African leaders and leaders from yes. these developed countries and the presidency of this COP, which is we don't need more, you know, things to do. We need to just stick to what has already been agreed and make it happen. I want to I wanna zero back on the question of the geopolitics and the energy that you just talked about. Now, with the current energy crisis due to the geopolitical situation, there is almost an unapologetic demand for fossil fuel supplies. What's your take on that? Yeah, well, it's, well, you could argue it's unacceptable. Um, and it's well grounded in the science that is unacceptable. At the same time, one must recognize that why are we in this situation? Well, there are two mistakes that have been done. Number one, we didn't listen to science that has been very clear from 1990 with the first IPCC assessment. If we had started to invest in renewable energy in 1990, we would have had a 30-year headway towards being able to buffer a shock like the Ukraine war. Mistake number two is that we've betted on, on a, you know, a stable, harmonious relationship, even with autocratic, non-democratic, in this case, even war-mongering economies such as the Russian one. So we have, you know, placed ourselves in a very difficult situation, which means that my conclusion is that we simply, unfortunately, will have to recognize the mistakes in the sense that we're so addicted to fossil fuels that the short-term immediate uh, way of handling this, uh, this very chaotic situation is by temporarily increasing consumption of gas, oil, and in some cases even coal. Unfortunately, it's, it's unavoidable because otherwise you shut down your economies entirely. Does this mean that we lose pace on the longer term? I think not. I think countries like Germany, the world's fourth largest economy, very, very heavily hit now because they are the number one prime dependent on the North Stream pipeline across the Baltic from Russia. They are not... Uh, lowering their ambition on the legally binding decisions to phase out fossil fuels by 2045, to have a coal phase out, you know, in the mid-2030s. But they are right now in the short term not having any choice because they're, they're locked into an infrastructure which is gas dependent. So one has to, um, so it comes back to our accountability point. What we need to do is, is not give up on the fact that now we have a, a few nations in Europe that are backtracking on their climate policy because of the energy crisis. What we need to do is to make clear that this is just a little blip and that they need to accelerate and compensate for that in the phase over the next five to ten years. Will that happen? I think the likelihood is very high that the answer is yes. Why? Well, because the Russian 
invasion of Ukraine is a very, very painful uh, reminder that we've done everything wrong in our energy politics. And, and, and this is a lesson point. I mean, it's a crisis that we cannot fail to react on. But, but do you believe that clean energy, like let's talk just Europe as a case in point, do you think that it is conceivable that clean energy can power the industrial needs of say European countries, countries like Germany in the very, very near future? Well, it depends on how you define very, very, very even. Of course, not, not over between now and five years. But if you think of in, in the next 10 years, the answer is yes. We, we can power big economies. Not, I mean, you have to have a broad portfolio of energy sources that are uh, not fossil fuel based. So both hydro, biomass, offshore wind, land wind, solar voltaic, fuel cell, I mean, hydrogen based storage of energy, which will have to come through surplus periods of, of renewable energy provision because of the losses you get in that production. And then an energy market, which is uh, European, so that when uh, France or Germany are low on solar, they can get hydro from the Scandinavian countries. Uh, and then I'm also of the view that standing nuclear should be used, should, should not be shut down. So France has 80% of its electricity through nuclear today and is exporting a lot of electricity to Germany when you have gaps to fill. So, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not impossible. And when you look at it carefully and, uh, and, and combine that with energy efficiencies as well, uh, you, 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 you see pathways that can take us to a point that, yes, you can phase out both coal, gas and oil even though it won't be easy. It's, it's definitely not, there's not a silver bullet out there to just replace with one energy source from another. But that it is possible is, um, is I think, increasingly shown uh, through, through the analytics that, that we have on the table today. Let's hope the policies would keep up with the advancements and we find yes, the policies right. in place, you know? Yeah, and the policies are important. And, you know, the, the European price on carbon and the ETS-1 and ETS-2, you know, ETS-2 cannot be delayed now. There are discussions on that. But, you know, getting transport, the whole building sector um, on board into the emission tradings is absolutely fundamental because Europe now has uh, a significantly high price on carbon, roughly 100 euros per ton of carbon dioxide, still only in the, in the energy utility sector, but, but moving into the other sectors, I think that this is a very clear signal of, uh, of something making the transition essentially impossible to back off from. I want to share with you some tidbits from, you know, Finance Day, which was just happening. And um, just some facts on finance. And I'd love to uh, get your reaction on those. So during Finance Day at COP, we talked about big financial reform without much more money on the table. Multilateral development banks published their joint statement without much progress to show. MDBs, the multilateral development banks, they said they will align financial flows with the Paris Agreement, but fail to explain what is being on track. What does on track mean? Which brings us again to measurement and data. And there are no forward plans for climate finance that were put on the table. 
There was no talk of phasing out fossil fuels financing at all. And there was no talk of alignment with 1.5 degrees. How do you how do you read that? I, I can only read it in one way, and it's, it's with, with deep concern. We... Um, so at the same time that all of this occurred that you summarized so, so well, uh, we released the 2022 version of the 10 new insights in climate science, the 10 most important advancements in climate science that we hand over to Simon Steele, the head of the United Nations Framework Convention that goes into all the negotiating teams. And the number 10 among those 10 is the scientific conclusion that we have a mismatch. We have the scientific and actually policy alignment of a net zero pathway for actually over 100 countries in the world now until 2050, which is this 5 to 7% per year emission reduction pace. But the economy is still operating in, in a mode which does not factor in the, the costs nor the advantages of that investment. So even when we look scientifically at all the private finance initiatives, which are actually quite significant numbers with all the green bonds and, you know, the three, four trillion US dollars of, of uh, capital that are now being aligned, aligned with Paris. That is not shifting the balance. It's not tipping the scales in the, in the, in the large flows of finance, nor in the, in the public coffers of states. So the GDP-based resource allocations are still running more or less on status quo. We're not factoring in the externalities, but we're not even putting a value on, on the quality of air and the security and the reduced displacement that we can secure by, by investing in a decarbonized future. So, so we are really in trouble on the finance. You're absolutely why, right. Why did Beyond GDP go to sleep? Well, it's, uh, it's, I, I, think, well I, I think we are temporarily putting it into sleep because of this difficulty as soon as we get a shock in the economy like a pandemic uh, and then followed by the Ukraine war it it creates this sense in the finance ministries in the world that oh my god we have a a, a spanner in the wheel stock markets going down we simply need to uh, save whatever save can be and 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 that makes us even more stuck in status quo but the problem is that we have this misalignment that you know, decarbonizing the world economy. But, I mean, one could backtrack this one step. Oil, coal, and gas powers the global economy. There's a one-to-one -one relationship. It's a straight line. GDP growth and fossil fuels, straight line. We're, we, we're breaking that line, and we're supposed to break it in seven years' time. I mean, fundamentally break it. So it requires some fundamental recognitions that the financial system needs to change in a big way, not in this incremental way. As you said, subsidies are still being maintained to fossil fuels. How can we have subsidies for fossil fuels when we're supposed to phase them out? Mm. This is my last question. You said, and I quote, every tenth of a degree matters, end of quote. The New Economist cover, which uh, I found quite amusing, reads, goodbye to 1.5 degrees centigrade. What is your thought on that? Is it goodbye? I have great respect to The Economist. I love The Economist, Me actually. Me too, but... Yeah. But in this case, they are, they're wrong. And, and I understand where they're coming from, of course, because, you know, when you look at it scientifically, 1.5 is not a goal. You cannot compromise with it. You cannot negotiate with the planet or with the atmosphere. 1.5 is a physical limit. Go beyond it, we're likely to knock the green ice sheet across this tipping point. So, you know, you don't give up on something like that. I mean, you and I, we reach 42 degrees Celsius of body temperature. You'll go beyond that tipping point. What happens? We die. 
if if you're if you're on your way there, would you would you compromise and say let's let's go for forty three instead? You can't do that. But it's, what about it's a the limit. promise? What so, about the so what the economist? No, but, what the, what the economist no, but look here, what the economist is saying is that if you look at the politics, if you look at the uh, inability of countries to act, if you look at the economy, exactly. we are we are losing it, and I and I totally agree with that. But you know that doesn't mean that we should drop it, and it doesn't mean that we cannot achieve it. You know. Just, just do what I'm telling you is necessary from a scientific community, and we can actually decarbonize the world economy by 2050, build carbon sinks in nature, and remove carbon from the atmosphere. We would have a two, three decade overshoot, but we would have a safe landing by 2080. It is possible, it's just that it requires a fundamental system shift. The economist makes the assessment, we are unable to do it. That I can agree with, but it's not physically possible to, to kind of compromise with 1.5. We want to hear the voice of science loud and clear, and we need to create the systems that make it mandatory for the world to listen and to act. So I wish you, you know, every strength possible to break boundaries, to continue to break boundaries. And we hope that not just this COP, but every action that we take in the next months and years lead us to where we need to be. I thank you so much for your time and for your incredible work. No, oh, thanks, Shirin. Great to be with you. This has been another episode of the Transformers podcast, brought to you by the UN Science Policy Business Forum on the Environment and Partners. To keep up with recent uploads, events, and other updates, follow our Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook pages, all linked in the description. There is also a video version of this episode available on the official Transformers YouTube channel, also linked below. Thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you again soon.